This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we are all really, really excited. There's a new book out. It's called The Mets. We are joined by the author himself, Devin Gordon. The book is called So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. Truer words never spoken. Devin, so great to have you with us. We have been admiring the book. There was a great excerpt in Business Week magazine. So even before we started recording, we were catching up with you and just so excited to have you with us. First of all, congrats on the book. It's it's terrific. Thank you so much. That's that's really, really kind of you. So how do you, as a fan, make the leap? Obviously, you're a journalist, but it's like getting to the point where you think, all right, there's a book here. How do you even go about attacking this franchise from a storytelling perspective? Well, I kind of almost sort of backed into it a little bit because the book started out um, as an article in the New York Times Magazine about Gary, Keith, and Ron, which is our broadcast booth, the the one year-in and year-out awesome thing that Mets fans have. And we were in the midst of a pretty awful start, as we always are. Um, And having the best booth covering the worst team seemed like a funny contrast. And that, that article did pretty well, I guess. And I got asked by an editor if, if I wanted to write a book, which I didn't because books are long. And then gradually I realized what he was asking was, is there a way to turn the article into a book? And it just seemed like the subtext of the article was this, this genetic messiness that we've had all through our history and that we were actually born with, with Casey Stengel in the 62 Mets. So what if you told the history of the team that was through the prism of losing and our gift at losing? Because that actually seems like what's special about us. I hate it when people say the Mets are a bad team. We're not. We're gifted at losing. There's a very big difference. <laughs> and I wanted to write a book about that and tell the history of our team through that kind of prism because it would include losses like, you know, in Game 7 of the National League Championship Series. Most teams don't have losses like that. And so that seemed like an interesting way to look at a book. Well, I have to ask you about the 1986 World Series. Yeah. And that's where you became a Mets fan. (laughs) Yeah. The cry from Boston is heard up and down the coast. (laughs) You know, funny thing, I'm actually in Boston right now. I live in Boston. Um, Technically Brookline, but but I can spit. You know, I can almost spit on Fenway Park from here. Um, and so, and I wrote most of the book in Boston, which I thought was kind of subversive. Um, but the point being, I've, I've been, you know, I've been seeing a lot of people around my street who know I wrote a Mets book. And I keep saying to them, and if they get it, I'm like, don't worry, I get the mean stuff about Boston out of the way in the prologue. So if you're a Boston fan and you skip the prologue, you'll love the book. If you read the prologue, there's a real chance you're going to come after me. So just a fair one. 
There we go. That's my song. There it is. I mean, how can you hate a team like that? Right? I woke up. I, I have to say, Devin, I woke up sort of with this song in my head, knowing that I was gonna that we were gonna be talking to you. Uh, so, Lynchy, I, I gotta you gotta come in with an '86 question here. I mean, I know it's painful, but you know, to just exercise those demons. I'll be nice. Don't well, worry. Well, I mean, you know, you're writing a book about you lamenting, like you know, all this drought we had and how things have gone wrong. You won a World Series in your what seventh year in existence? I mean, try waiting eighty six years for a World Series championship, <laughs> and you think you have so many ways to lose? <laughs> I'll give you Bill Buckner. I'll give you Johnny Pesky <laughs> in nineteen forty six. I'll give you Johnny Bench in nineteen seventy five. On and on and on it goes. Love the book, though, Devin. It's, Can uh, I, it's, I just need to ask, are we having this conversation in 2003? How did we do this? Because <laughs> it, I, I seem to, it's, it's, it's almost as if we're having this conversation in the universe in which you haven't won four World Series. <laughs> well, yeah, we made up for lost time. You sure did. When do I get to make up for lost time? <laughs> I Literally, I won a World Series, got to experience the joy of winning a World Series when I was 10 years old. And so when something like that happens when you're 10, you think, this is great. This is going to happen all the time. I love feeling this way. And this is how I'm it works. I'm 44 now. I'm 44 now. Yeah. And it has not happened since. I had to go, like, root for entirely different franchises and entirely different sports in order to savor the thrill of, of winning. And I was stupid enough to pick the Jets. So here <laughs> I am. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's – and, you know, it's it's uh, it's – it's a it's a difficult thing to be stuck with that big a drought, but it does pay off in the long term, I think, because I can. There are so many enjoyable stories I can go back and tell, and the flavor of them and the humor of them gets better. And every time I think of like, you know, the Yankees reminiscing about 1998, it's it's like trying to get goosebumps to go up as high as they always do, and they never do, right? So. You know, the Mets had one of the most entertaining seasons I've ever experienced in 2019. And I think we finished in third place. And I think the record was like 83 and 79. But it was so much fun. Yeah. Pete Alonzo was hitting home runs all over the place. Jacob deGrom was turning into Tom Seaver. We were blowing games, coming back. It was baseball. And it was so much fun. And I, and I, I can't imagine many franchises and many fan bases being able to enjoy a season like we enjoyed that season. And that's that's a a special kind of character that the Mets have. Um, And, you know, it was fun to write about that. You know, it's not as much fun to write about winning. So, Devin, I mean, you... You're alluding to a really interesting point or something that I was thinking about as I, as I was reading through the book, which, which is this notion that we have very clear evidence of late, thanks to a, a certain uh, richest owner in the major leagues, that despite a, a history of losing, sorry, uh, this is a mm-hmm. very valuable franchise. Part of it is New York, but part of it is the fan base. Part of it is TV. Like, tell us about sort of how this still manages to be a, a very, very valuable asset and one that, you know, ended up in arguably one of the more entertaining and star-studded bidding wars we've seen when it, when it turned over just recently to Stevie Cohen. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're hitting on an interesting point, and it's one of the things that um, I like to do in the book is 
and just in general in telling stories is to try to complicate a case, not take the counterintuitive or argue, for instance, in this case, the little ponds were actually, you know, geniuses and great owners because they weren't. They are what we think they were. But the telling of it gets richer, which is Fred Wilpon in the late 70s was one of the few people in New York City who was like, there's only one National League baseball team in New York City right now. And in 50 years, there's only going to be one National League baseball team in New York City. That's really valuable. And anybody in New York City at that time who had money could have had this insight. But he had it. And they bought the team for $21 million. And of that $21 million, he managed to become the controlling partner of the team, despite putting in only $350,000 of his own money. I'm starting to think Fred Wilpon might have been on to something, yeah. right? And, and so when we tell these histories, his insight that this would be a hugely valuable thing, surely even more valuable than he probably ever reckoned, echoes into right now. There's only one National League baseball team in New York City. It is a very valuable thing, and it'll be a very valuable thing for 50 years for as long as we play baseball. And, but on the flip side, the idea that, that the billions that Stevie Cohen represents is going to come to our rescue and turn us from the Mets into the Yankees, oh, that's just an adorable thought. I mean, that's just adorable. You know, like, no way. Have you been paying attention this whole spring training? I mean, come on. Well, <laughs> see, I'm a Tigers fan. And I, by the way, I'm listening to both of you. All you guys is like, well, we haven't won. We haven't. Look, the last yeah, time we yeah. won the World Series was 84. You guys won it after we did. And you, you yeah. guys look great. And I think this book, you can relate it to any team that's great at losing, a la yeah. Tigers. And and this book carries over uh, in in so many ways. Uh, that's one reason why I like this book. It's it's you know we've talked about like under non COVID terms. Um, we talked about on non COVID terms um, like going on like a, a losers tour or something like that to like right. the cities that you know can identify with us. Your Cleveland's, your Detroit's, you know certain teams in Chicago, the entire state of Minnesota. You know, boy, by the way, what is it with the upper Midwest and stinking? Yeah. It is. It's <laughs> amazing how much. Anyway, um, but like, you know, there are the Clippers fans, if you can find them. Like, there's so many teams that have this kind of spirit. And, like, you know, this book could have easily been about the Cleveland Browns. We all know that, right? And. You know, there's franchises like that that just have this sort of beleaguered but affectionate, and the affection is the really big part of it, right, Um, component to their existence that stands for them much more than winning does. All right, so let me ask you, how did you come up with the title for this book? Because it is the longest title, I think, in the history of of publication. (laughs) It's a great great title, but how did you come up with it? Well, you know, you're supposed to have like these long subtitles. I always see in these nonfiction books. Um, and I and I actually just wanted it to be the amazing true story of the best worst team in sports. And then they were like, but yeah, but you never said Mets. And I was like, oh, yeah, good point. So I had to make it longer. But so many ways to lose is a paraphrase of the Casey Stengel quote. Um, you know, Casey is often called the original Met. Um, and 
one of the things that became obvious to me and one of the sort of the inspiring notions of the book was why do we talk this way about our team? Why are we this way? And it really is coded into the DNA. Like if you contrast the Yankees and the Mets, the Yankees are a pro sports franchise that was built to win titles and pack seats and make money. And so that ethos still echoes today. The Mets were a team that was born knowing they were going to be truly awful, probably for a couple of years, and that that would become corrosive if it wasn't lighthearted and entertaining. And so the team was built to be fun. And so, of course, that's sort of our spirit now. And that was interesting to me, right, that, that, these, that, these, that the DNA for a sports franchise can, can, can echo like that. And so, you know, Devin, one of the the elements of this that's, of course, fascinating to us, given the the Bloomberginess of of this show, yeah. is is the whole Madoff uh, saga and the Madoff connection, and and how that affects the economics of the team, how it affects the owners. You know, you talked earlier in the conversation about, you know, Fred Wilpon being smarter than the average bear, way smarter than the average bear in his assessment when he bought the team. Obviously, a, a, a massive error in judgment, to say the least, yeah. uh, to associate him and his family um, with the Madoffs. But but what does that do, and, and how does that affect the, the more recent history? Because it does. It obviously has an effect on sure. the, the sale of the team, the running of the team, the, the reputation of the family. Help us understand that. It's so many ups and downs, right? I mean, you're talking about the Wilpons pre-Madoff are riding high, right? Yeah. They they are at the peak of their um, reign as owners. They they came up, you know, just a strikeout short of a World Series appearance in 2006. That was I I, I was sure that team was going to win the World Series, which is the only time I've ever felt that about the match. That was mm-hmm. I still think that was one of our best teams ever. And that would have been our, you know, second World Series trip in six or seven years. The, the, the Wilpons were objectively running a successful, if a little bit loopy, franchise. Right. And then Madoff comes along, and the whole house of cards falls. And in, by 2011, Bobby Benilla is the who has been retired for a year and is a cursed name in New York. Um, is now, by virtue of a, a sort of annuity-laden contract, the highest-paid outfielder in your on your roster, making one point two million a year because the Wilpons can barely afford to field the team. Then you also go from that nadir to a reloading of the team that brings Matt Harvey and Jacob Degrom, and Noah Syndergaard, and Michael Conforto, and Three or four years later, you know, kind of like the the '62 team rising from nowhere to win a World Series in '69, the Mets are out of nowhere back in a World Series in 2015. So this sort of, you know, phoenix turning to ashes and then rising from the ashes and turning into a phoenix, like you know, it's and then lighting itself on fire all over again. Right. That's the Mets. That's what we do. And I, I guess I see, you know, the Madoff Nadir then going swinging back up to the heights of 2015, although what, what, the, what that financial sort of generation did was, was weaken the Wilpon family to the point where I think a lot of them started to be like, well, let's get out of this. This is crazy. We 
don't like how Jeff runs this team. We got to get out of here before he costs us another billion dollars. And now we have Steve Cohn. And this is another cycle. It seems like a high, but if it is, just you wait. You know, like that's this is what we do. And right. sort of seeing Steve Cohen rather as, as not a sort of we're slamming one door of an era and opening another, but rather as sort of part of a sine wave, mm. um, I think is probably the safe way for Mets fans to look at this. Where do you see the strength of business in general, not just for the Mets, but for Major League Baseball? Uh, yes, obviously, COVID yeah. impacted all the sports, but what? where do you see the impact going forward? You know, Major League Baseball is in an interesting spot because while I don't know a ton about the finances, I'm always hearing that it's actually way more financially successful than you would guess based upon the sort of public exposure and attention to the game right now, right? I think it's a real problem. I think the game is in, 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 in a real problem state in its public affection and awareness. I don't think that there are really any recognizable Major League Baseball stars right now. I mean, maybe I'm for, maybe Aaron Judge. I don't know. Um, maybe Mookie Betts. I kind of doubt it. And I know from my own experience that baseball, even for me as someone who loves baseball, is kind of a regional sport. I follow yeah. my team extremely closely. And I don't really follow anyone else. So when teams come in to play the Mets, unless they're in my division, I'm like, oh, who's this guy? You know? <laughs> right. And that's very different from how I consume the NBA, which I'm a big fan of. And every night I look at the schedule and I go look for the game that I think is going to be the, the most fun. And I go to League Pass and I watch it. I don't do that for baseball. Maybe I'm unusual in that regard, but I do get the sense that people watch it regionally. And I don't think that's such a good thing for the sport, even if they're finding other ways to make money. It feels like a depreciating currency that they're drawing on. Evan, a, I, do I, I know, is that at all correct? I just used a business term. I have no idea what it means. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a, it's actually a really interesting insight because I think we're constantly – I, I think we all kind of take for granted at this point, and, and Lynchy, I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. Like, we take advantage, or, or we we take for granted at this point. Like, the NBA has figured something out that other people haven't. Like that that's sort of the given, one of the givens that we operate on. But I think it's an interesting frame. This notion that it's that baseball is more regional. What do you think, Lynchy? I, I agree. Um, you know, uh, it was the the last sport really to have a national we we could watch a team from los angeles if lived on the east coast and national mm-hmm. football league every sunday you you can see the green bay packers the dallas cowboys the rams uh, the giants the jets the dolphins no matter where you live um and and i i agree and i think it goes back for you know generations you know you remember it, it's a romantic game you remember the first time you walked i walked into fenway park with my dad and the first thing i saw was i can't believe how green this place is the grass and the mm-hmm. wall and I don't have that feeling. When I walked into Boston Garden, all I remember is the, the sticky floor and the smell of stale beer. <laughs> and um, at Foxborough, I just remember sitting in traffic on Route 1 all day long. So I think it has to, be, <laughs> it has to do with the, uh, I think, the, you know, the, the romanticism of the game and how it's been, it, it, that's the one sport that's been passed down generation to generation. And, you're, and the team that your grandfather and your father and your uncle rooted for is passed down to you. Yeah, and I, you know, there are some things about it that are not necessarily bad. There is something really nice 
and romantic about being that invested in your home team. And it's fine because other sports are another way. That's fine. The NBA is not that way. And, you know, football has kind of gone almost in a, a flip where, you know, like you were saying, you would have your home game and then you'd have a national game. And it was always the same teams, right? You know, the Bucks were never on the, the national game. Um, but now the NFL, we all watch everything, right? Yeah. You're either going to a bar or you're watching Red Zone. Um, and you watch every game. Um, in fact, I think I saw some data from Axios this morning that was really interesting. It said something about how um, NFL fans, you know, really do watch all the games for the most part, whereas MLB fans and NBA fans enjoy highlights more than the actual game. And I think that's definitely a problem, both for the NBA, which has always known it's had this problem, and MLB, I think, which is discovering that it's having this problem. Um, and that's a real issue because I think the regionalism is partly a sign that if it's not my team, I'm not really enjoying this, right? And that has some lessons, I think, for baseball. And, you know, I'm also interested to hear what you guys think about these sort of the ways that change, changing the rules to try to create more action on the field, I, I really do think is a business imperative for yeah. the sport. And I'm interested to see, you know, what you guys think of, do you think what they're going to be, what they're actually doing is nibbling around the edges or is it going to work? I mean, I'll take it. I mean, I think it could work. It doesn't seem quite, to be honest, radical enough for me. I mean, yeah. I, and, and you know, we've, we've talked about this a lot on our show. You know, we've talked to Trevor Bauer about it. We talked to others, um, you know, in and around major league baseball, you know, and part of the issue is I, I see this through the lens of my two teenage sons, 18 and 16, who just don't give a whit about baseball. Like they'll go to a game, you know, I took them to Dodger stadium when we were in LA a couple years ago and they thought that was cool, but they couldn't name a player. You know, we'll go to a Yankee game or a Met game every now and again, but they're, you know, they are, they are not that interested and, and we need to find ways to, to get another generation interested. It feels like it, it, it feels marginal to me. I don't know what you think, Michael Barr. I think, and I'm speaking just as an old school fan, especially of baseball, the biggest thing that got me hooked on not just the Tigers, but all the players in the league were Topps baseball cards. Because I, I got the whole set and I could see all the players. I, yeah. I knew Ed Cranpool. I, I, you know, I, I knew all these players. It's like I'm seeing their stats. I, I can. Mm-hmm. That got me into the entire league. So I was waiting. Hopefully, you know, when Mel Allen would give me uh, baseball this week, that that, I, that was must see TV. For oh, I love that show. Woo. I yeah. love that show. Done. Um, well, you know, you made a good. Sorry, I don't want to jump in, but that's a really interesting point because I, I imagine you guys have been following, if not talked about, you know, Top Shot, yes, the NFT boom, and it, and it definitely does seem like the that sort of affection that's beyond the game, where you're cultivating the culture around it, disappeared from baseball. Baseball cards were a big part of that, maybe more than we even realized. And that kind of collectible universe really feels like it's catching fire again. And maybe that maybe that becomes the way that I'm learning about some, you know, Seattle Mariners left fielder who's super cool because 
everybody's talking about his top shot card or whatever. And those things matter. Um, and if you're cannibalizing your product with highlights to get people in the game, you know, I think we're starting to see the, the inherent risks there. Devin, I have some encouraging uh, news here for sales of your book, uh, which probably should last 162 games. I'm holding in my hands this uh, most recent issue of Sports Illustrated. And guess who's on the cover? Francisco Lindor. And it says, get happy, Mets fans. Francisco Lindor wants to save the game one smile and home run at a time. So this is guaranteeing that the jinx is on and they're going to finish out of the playoffs. And <laughs> you, you, you sales of your book right are going to go through the roof. You shook the words right out of my mouth. With every word of that deck, it's like my dread just kept, you could feel it like rising from my neck to my mouth, to my nose, to my eyes. Uh, you know, the thing ending with the smile. Yeah, you know whose smile everybody talked about before he got the New York Bobby Bonilla, yeah, magnetic thousand watt smile. We knocked that smile off his face right quick, didn't we? So <laughs> I keep saying, Francisco Lindor, just get out of here with your body intact. Just please, just, just make sure you get out of here with your body intact. That's you know, go with God, but you know, God isn't here. So. <laughs> well, well, to ex- extend the metaphor, you knocked that smile off of Bobby Bonilla's face and then paid a lot for the orthodontia going forward. <laughs> oh, but, my God. Um, That's a great line. <laughs> uh, and, and I will say, you know, as we start to wrap up here, highly, highly recommend as a teaser, go to businessweek.com uh, or pick up uh, one of the recent editions because it has a fantastic excerpt from this book uh, that goes deep into the – Bonilla deal, as it were, and talks about the economics of it, which are surprising, uh, both in their scope, but also in in their impact and, and made a lot of things possible, as, as you uh, rightly point out. So before we let you go, I got to ask you, Devin, Steve Cohen, what, what's your read so far? You know, he was on Twitter, he was engaging, then he was essentially chased off. He has been making some moves. Like, how do you assess him so far? I'm cautiously optimistic Mm. i'm it's an interesting divide in that i'm i like a lot of the rationality it just seems like he makes thoughtful careful reasonable decisions about what to do with the baseball team and that's um a little weird for me (laughs) um so i'm like that's really nice um at the same time i'm suspicious I'm suspicious of his background, of um, some of his, some of the early conduct of the team. I'm, I'm not sure I'm seeing a lot of matchup between the words and the behavior. Um, the Trevor Bauer pursuit did not fill me with confidence, even though it filled me with delight for the way it ended. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, I'm glad we don't have him, but it is troubling to me that we wanted him so badly. Mm. Um given his past. Um, and so those things I feel like I'm keeping a close eye on. Um, I'm not so naive to think that, you know, every fan sort of resigns themselves um, to some of the owners that they've got. Um, but I'm not, I'm not ready to throw any parades. Let's put it that way. Did you, did you have a sense of dread when it looked like there was even a shot at uh, a rod owning the Mets? Oh my God, that was, 
you know, I had sort of a mixed reaction, which was both dread and horror, and then a slight, slight, slight silver lining the thought of, what well, does this mean J Lo is going to be at the games? Right. Because that's okay. You know, yeah. like, that's good. Um, but, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, jeez. That was, you know, that was going to be a nightmare. And, you know, just being trolled by Jose Canseco for the rest of their lives would have been right. enough, like, would have been bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. Man, we're so glad to have you. You made me laugh so hard. Ask, yeah, because as a Tigers fan, I don't smile. Uh, I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch, still flipping through my Sports Illustrated with Francisco Lindor on the cover. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And our thanks to Devin Gordon. The book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. Pick it up wherever you get your books. It is worth it. A great read. And not just for Mets fans and not just for Mets haters out there. Uh, it's really a story about baseball. It's really a story about uh, the modern sports era, ownership, decisions, all of that. So our congratulations and thanks to him. I'm Jason Kelly. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week. Still got March Madness going on, so we're going to talk with Eric Newberger. He is the Lucas Oil Stadium director, host, of course, of the Final Four. The whole shebang is happening in Indianapolis. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, around the world and online, wherever you get your podcasts.